The GIST is creating new African narratives through disseminating key lessons and best practices from some of the continent's leading entrepreneurs and businesses. For this inaugural podcast, we're excited to be talking to Jahil Oliver, the CEO of Hello Tractor. Hello Tractor is an innovative, award-winning, shared economy platform that makes tractor usage affordable to marginalized farmers in sub-Saharan Africa. Through his prior work in agriculture and rural markets, Jahil recognized an unmet need for low-income, majority women farmers to access affordable farm machinery, leading him to found Hello Tractor. He's been recognized for his leadership and contribution to social entrepreneurship and poverty alleviation in Africa, notably as an Echoing Green Global Fellow and his appointment by President Obama to serve on his President's Advisory Council on Doing Business in Africa, where he most recently chaired the Technology Subcommittee. Perhaps just tell us a little bit about your background. Um, how did you find yourself here on the African continent running a social enterprise? What problem were you trying to solve? Sure. Um, so I'm from, I'm from the States. I'm from the U.S. Um, I moved to the continent six years ago after a um, seven, ten-year career in finance. And uh, um, I was interested interested in doing work that was more meaningful. That initially led me to uh, deal structuring the microfinance space, um, kind of started doing um, consulting work, helping funds um, capitalize themselves to, to fund microfinance institutions across the emerging markets. Um, and then that kind of transitioned over to agriculture because a lot of these banks were focused on low-income populations, but didn't lend in agriculture, which didn't make sense to me because that's where the global poor earn their income. And so transition over to agriculture, and that, that led to Hello Tractor and me moving to Nigeria. No, fair enough. That, that makes sense. Honestly, when I think about it, I don't necessarily think of Nigeria as sort of the, the breadbasket of Africa, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so perhaps... Um, Nigeria was a bit of a brave one on your on your on your part. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, why Nigeria? And, and actually, coincidentally, that's actually where Jahil and I actually first met Nigeria. So why Nigeria as a test case? Well, as you mentioned, it is the breadbasket. Massive amounts of opportunity in Nigeria. Everybody talks about the opportunity in Nigeria. Um, but what I saw was this kind of intersection of the size of the opportunity and just the the lack of large corporate interests engaged in Nigeria. Um, I kind of took that as a lot of white space for me to do something interesting. And if we got it right, we could quickly mobilize partnerships from these large corporate interests who are obviously chomping at the bit to be in Nigeria, but not wanting to physically be in Nigeria for these kind of artificial, some artificial reasons, some very real reasons. Um, and so that was the bet that I wanted to make early on. And it, to some degree, it panned out as planned. Um, I don't know if I uh, fully understood the depths of some of the challenges, um, particularly at the macro level, um, you know, 
volatility of the Naira against the dollar and other, other hard currencies. Um, Nigeria just went into a, um, the recession that, that, it, that it experienced when I moved out there. That made business just difficult in general, but it also put up somewhat of a defensive kind of barrier for our business to test things in an in a environment where there wasn't a lot of other outside companies competing with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of proved to be beneficial, actually, because some of the risks just scared away everybody else. So because we were the idiots that were there, um, we could take advantage <laughs> of that canvas and paint, you know, um, as we saw fit. That's actually quite interesting because yeah. I feel like as if very often you don't really see the flip side of that, the fact that you now actually have potentially a bigger mm-hmm. piece of pie to play with. Yeah. And I mean, I guess a natural follow-on from that point is, you know, as an American, I guess, starting a business on the continent, yeah. you've talked to some of this, but like, what are some of the things that really surprised you? Because I'm sure there's things you heard about, but when you're on the ground, it's a little bit different. Yeah, well... A number of things, but let me try and focus on just a handful here. First of all, I thought that the transition would have been much more difficult than it actually was. So I kind of mentally mentally prepare myself for an environment that's just radically different. And in some ways it was. Um, I think because the rule of law isn't as well established on the continent, um, there's not a whole lot of past precedent for things. Contract law is almost worthless. You have to do business in a way where incentives are always aligned. Mm-hmm. Uh, because whenever there's a bifurcation, you're going to see people operate on their self-interest and not be guided by some contract or some document that you put in place or an NDA, right? So. I think that was probably um, one of the bigger realizations. But I also found that as a Black American coming over to the continent, I was uniquely equipped to adapt to some of the challenges in the continent that are similar in the U.S., specifically for Black Americans. And what I mean by that is I have a natural distrust for government, right? Just because of the way, the environment in which I grew up, I don't rely on the government or the police or, um, I never relied on them. So I never turned to those types of opportunities as my beacon for growing the business, right? And I think that's pretty, that was like a natural thing for me. And I think that's, some, that's, that's something that a lot of people struggle with coming from the West it's also an area where people coming from places like China do really well on the continent because the Chinese also have a, a natural distrust of these institutions, right? Because of, yeah. um, you know, <laughs> because of the Chinese government and how overbearing it can be, um, you know, and so that's why they also kind of, you find them adapting fairly easily in these environments because there's some commonality there. So I thought that was also interesting. No, absolutely. You've touched on a lot of, like, I think really interesting points as I think other entrepreneurs are thinking about, can we go and innovate on the continent and some of the opportunities, but also sometimes 
barriers structurally that can kind of hold back or hinder progress. Maybe just talking specifically about your business, about Hello Tractor, can you tell us a little bit more about your business model? How do yeah. you make money yeah. and who, who effectively are your customers? Yeah, so, so we, our business operates in a double-sided market. On the supply side of our business, you have farm equipment owners who use our IoT and SaaS product to remotely manage their fleets of equipment to minimize fraud, ensure the machinery is being properly maintained, um, their operators, their drivers aren't stealing fuel, which is a big issue in this market. Um, mm-hmm. So you're kind of core fleet management, but adapted to tractors, combines, other types of farm equipment. Uh, we use that fleet management product to grow the supply side. But once we have these customers engaged with the SaaS product, we then open up our marketplace, right? And we charge for our SaaS product. But once we have them, we open up our marketplace and say, look, you, you own this equipment. You're at about 30% capacity of what this equipment could be doing. Mm-hmm. Let's find a, a market to sell services into. We'll support you in that. Make sure that the, the work that we find you is um, coming to you at economies of scale so you can fully monetize your equipment and not, not lose money as you service these jobs um, and try and get your tractor capacity fully absorbed through the pent-up demand um, in our marketplace of farmers who need equipment, who are labor-constrained um, and, you know, growing on small plots. So it doesn't make sense for them to own a tractor, but they need to access equipment to cultivate their land in a, and they need to access that equipment in a convenient and timely way, reliable way. Um, and so we bridge that supply and demand to unlock that value for the grower so they can plant 30, 40 times faster and at a third of the cost of manual labor. And we take a transaction commission on those, um, that marriage of supply and demand as well. So I guess you've, you've gotten to a point where you've obviously really refined your business model. Um, but you've kind of had to sort of pivot a little bit along yeah. along the years. Um, so maybe could you maybe walk us through um, some that pivot specifically and where you sort of are with that? Um, yeah. Because really, I think more than anything else, what's kind of really important always is to highlight that the original idea that you came up with sometimes is just it's, it's not quite there, and you sort of need to yeah. um, speak to your market because at the end yeah. of the day, often especially now in terms of COVID, a lot of people are really going, how do I, how do I change? How do I grow? How do I become better than I was before? Yeah. Yeah. Um, perhaps the things we c- people could learn from um, Hello Tractor and your journey as well on that. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting question, B, because I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly stubborn, right? And I think... Um, <laughs> we don't know. We don't know this. <laughs> <laughs> I think... And here's the challenge, right? This is kind of the, the paradox of entrepreneurship. You have to be stubborn enough to try things that are uh, seemingly difficult, maybe even impossible, right? And you have to tell all the naysayers that for whatever reason, you're right and they're wrong, right? But you also have to be sensitive to what the market is telling you. Not individuals, but the market, right? So that's going to be your customers. That's going to be 
macro signals, right? Whatever you, whatever is most important for your business, you have to have your hand on that pulse and be responsive to it. So for me, when I started Hello Tractor, you know, we were selling tractors. We were a, an actual tractor dealership. And we, we did that for three years and I learned a ton. So, you know, I, I appreciate this experience, but it was a disaster of a business. It is hard to sell tractors at scale in Africa. And quite frankly, nobody's really doing it outside of South Africa. Uh, and so we were trying to be de tractor dealers and our customers kept telling us this little tech stuff that you're doing on the side, that's actually what we want. We don't want your stupid tractor because we had that product bundled with our tractor as a kind of a differentiator. You buy a tractor, you get tracking on that tractor and we'll mm -hmm. help you find farmers to service through our marketplace work. Not quite as sophisticated as where we are now, but some basic version of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we did that for three years. We kept getting this feedback that, that it was a crap tractor. We don't want it. Um, but we had these advisors from these top institutions, Ivy League institutions, telling us this is the tractor for Africa. It's worked in Asia. It, it's, you know, all over Bangladesh and India and China. Um, so you should sell it in Africa, too, because a lot of the demographics are similar. Um, income levels are similar, farm sizes similar as well. And we didn't take into account some of the nuance that our customers were trying to kind of tell us about. And as a result, we were banging our head up against the wall for three years. Mm. And the lesson that I took from that is um, you really need to, you really need to pay close attention to your customers. Um, you need to put a premium on what they tell you and discount the experts and I'm putting up air quotes, but you can't see that because it's a podcast. <laughs> but, but you gotta, you gotta pay attention to your customer and be responsive to their needs while still maintaining the whole, you know, that lofty goal of disrupting agriculture or revolutionizing the world. You know, the entrepreneurs talk, but you can, you can still have that, but you still need to be able to pivot and you're operating operating day-to-day -day work to make sure you're you're solving those those real problems that build up to that revolutionary business model that'll disrupt the world right mm -hmm. um and so because you're not doing that overnight it's just a bunch of it's a series of incremental shifts and pivots that you're making as you take inventory of the market and what your customers are telling you and incorporating that feedback into your product Absolutely. And I, and I think it probably goes back to the question around if your purpose as a business is so clear um, and you're in tune with what your customers are asking you for, it's easy to pivot mm -hmm. in response to what they're asking you for. Whereas yeah. if, you're, if you're so focused on a particular solution and that solution doesn't yeah. work, as a business, you kind of are, are stuck. Yeah. Right. Exactly. That's why I think for specifically for... Um, founders in Africa, you know, you you can't you can't be product obsessed on the continent because the line of sight on what is, especially when you're talking about frontier technologies, when you're talking about really innovative stuff, you know, this that kind of stuff 
changes all the time. Now, the overarching thesis might not change. Like we, the overarching thesis that farmers in Africa need uh, tractors and the unit economics makes sense when you can optimize a tractor across many users, that, that always remain the same. But that doesn't mean we need to be tractor dealers, right? Um, and, and so, you know, we, we committed ourselves to a thesis that would be, it's very easy to, to defend because the numbers just make sense. But everything, that's the end point, right, is, is proving that thesis. But the product is really more of the journey. And there's a variety of pathways to get to that end point. And, and so sometimes you have to switch, right, and, and make tweaks and modifications. And that's exactly what we did. And when you find entrepreneurs that are very product obsessed, particularly technical founders who don't fully appreciate things like go-to-market strategies um, and commercialization and, you know, capitalizing the work and making sure you're not running out of balance sheet as you tinker in the laboratory, um, that kind of stuff is maybe even more important here in Africa because there's no, the structures aren't there for you to say, well, everything else works here. I just need to innovate on this one thing or this last 5%. Yeah. It's really more like there's an imperfect market. And I'm talking about the vertical that we're in because some markets work just fine here. But like in our vertical, it's an imperfect market. There are a lot of failures and um, I'm not exactly sure how, what the end solution will look like, but I do know it's there and the fundamentals um, around our business hypothesis make sense. Um, so I'll just continue to hack away based on those fundamentals, but those incremental changes, um, certainly you should expect those. Got you. I guess perhaps, perhaps a follow-up question to this as well is that obviously moving across the region and of Africa as a whole, are there tweaks mm-hmm. that you've had to do um, moving from West Africa to East Africa? What are you mm-hmm. seeing? Are you having to sort of a little bit sort of work on your feet, be it regulation, be it the, the customer, be it the geography yeah. differences? Are there things that you're constantly having to tweak now as well? Tons of nuances across. Right now we're in 13 countries in Africa. Um, it's the same in Asia as well. But there's a lot of nuance. I think what we tried to do is develop a product that had those core features to solve for that thesis that I mentioned, mm-hmm. and then leave enough space in the product for somebody to locally come in and say, you know, in Nigeria is a little different. Or even forget about in Nigeria, right? In northern Nigeria, it is very different than the Middle Belt and then from southern Nigeria, right? So you have to leave that wiggle room for the user to incorporate that nuance into their business as they use your product. And that's exactly what we did. So there's, mm-hmm. there's certain things like we get asked all the time, why don't we set prices, right? Well, you know, 30 to 40% of a tractor owner's cost structure is fuel, right? If we set prices for tractor or combine services, we would have to know what the fuel cost was, right? Because it can the, the swings in the fuel market is dramatic, especially in these last mile areas. And so we don't define prices because that would assume that we know fuel prices, which we don't. So we let our customer do that. But what we can do 
is make prices transparent so that it is competitive. So that a farmer in some random rural community, I don't care what country, if we're operating in that country, they pull up the app, they'll see the prices of all the customers in their area, right? That's very different than, let's say, a Uber in their pricing algorithm. They're in an urban market. They have price transparency around fuel. They can embed that into their 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 pricing structure and we can't so we had to innovate around that that's just one example of many where we create space for our customers to tell us what's right Mm -hmm. um but leave put a put a infrastructure in place that meets their core needs and i mean on both sides of the marketplace um those core needs are being met with space for them to incorporate the local market nuance Absolutely. Thinking about your technology, a lot of people are talking about smart farming and, um, you know, and tech and ag is not a natural fit that you necessarily put together. But in your mind, mm-hmm. what does the future agriculture on the continent look like? That's a big question. Because I have an interest, right? So, like, I'm interested in mechanizing the continent. Why? 50% of the yield gap what farmers grow versus what they should grow. And uh, on the continent, um, that gap is a lot, 50% of it is a lack of access to mechanization. Mm -hmm. If the farmers have access to mechanization, they can intensify their fields and make more money for themselves and improve food system resiliency more broadly for the continent. And food is not like other commodities, right? Food is, it should be at least a national security concern for any leader who's paying attention because it's just that important. And when the price of food changes, people go crazy. And we've seen that not only in in Sub-Saharan Africa, but, you know, we saw that with, heck, we saw that with the Arab Spring. Uh, And so you have to be able to protect and build in resiliency in your local food system. And I believe mechanization is a big part of that, or at least 50% of it based on this statistic. Now, so when I talk about like innovation in the food system, I think about my starting point is mechanization. I don't just love tractors. I don't actually give a damn about tractors. But what I do care about is protecting and improving livelihoods across communities that have been largely forgotten and doing it in a way that's commercially sustainable and scalable. So um, bringing in the private sector and making it attractive um, to have that private sector engage. So a lot of the innovation work that we do is around this topic, right? There's a ton of stuff in ag tech, but when, when you frame the question around like, how do we promote systems change that can solve for these problems? I believe mechanization is a big part of that. And how do we then scale mechanization, right? And, and within that is it, it, it includes all sorts of stuff that is some of it is just like really wonky, like geeky stuff, like mm-hmm. autonomous trackers. I was literally talking to somebody yesterday about how to bring in some autonomy for testing in in our markets now that's something that you probably wouldn't even think was possible in the near term right but it but it is and it's something that we we believe we can begin testing right um but then there's also just 
less uh, interesting innovation from a technical perspective, but from a go-to-market, building out a commercially sustainable business perspective, to me, this stuff is equally, if not more exciting. And I'll give you just maybe one example. Uh, when you think about customer acquisition costs in any marketplace, that's going to be important. You think about how expensive capital is in these markets, it's almost cost prohibitive to build out a functional marketplace and do it profitably, especially in agriculture, where engaging farmers is expensive because they're in these rural communities that are largely disconnected. Yeah. What we've seen and where we find really exciting areas for innovation is this convergence of smart smartphone usage and the ability to use rural digital engagement in ways that aren't that innovative globally because they do this kind of stuff in growth hacking and Silicon Valley all the time, but it's new for our markets where we see a clear pathway to engage with you know, new customers using Facebook ads, for example, right? Mm -hmm. Where if I have an underperforming tractor and these tractors, we're, you know, they're, of course, they're connected to our cloud. So we look at usage rates. And if I see an underperforming tractor, I, can, I know I can spend $10 in a targeted, geographically targeted ad profile with our customer profiles that we've kind of figured out over time mm -hmm. to engage with those last mile communities and get yeah. a couple hundred acres of work for that tractor in about in less than a week, spending, you know, 10 bucks in Facebook ad credits. I couldn't do that three years ago. Yeah. We just, the market wasn't there yet, right? That's innovation. Now, it's not in the conventional sense innovative because it, that's how everybody does uh, growth hacking in Silicon Valley and not in these more mature markets. But in Africa, that's very innovative. And in African agriculture, that's rocket science. Um, so that's kind of the other end of the spectrum where it's more business model innovation and less about, you know, loading up on tech and getting the the nerds on the team happy. <laughs> I think that sounds, I mean, I think, I think that absolutely resonates. I think the, the question there, you know, you, you're, you're talking about mechanization being, you know, super important um, and then increasing yields. But then the question yeah. then comes to your role and I guess what does the market look like for that for that entrepreneur, your customers, right? Because we can increase yields, but then where we're selling where are we selling yeah. these goods? And so yeah. I think players are, are moving away from thinking of themselves as individuals along a value chain and, and thinking Absolutely. about partnerships. And so how like what does that Absolutely. look like in your sector and like yeah, like uh, whether it's whether it's access to markets, but also other players um, for your yeah. customers. How do you think about that, given what you do and what they need? Yeah, that's a great question. I think for us, partnerships have been key to our growth. There are so many things that a farmer needs, and to to holistically support that grower, you almost have to rely on partnerships. Yeah. And so for us, because we're tech enabled we see partnerships as digital first, um, especially when it comes to leveraging on our phys the physical infrastructure that we're putting in place, whether it be the tractor owners, right? And the physical assets that they're driving around these rural communities mm -hmm. or the booking agents that sit in these communities and book tractor services for their farmers, right? Because we leverage booking agents to organize and, and book, the, the, the services on behalf of the 
these farmers who may, may or may not be using smartphones this way. Uh, and so that infrastructure is important and just leveraging it for just tractors may not make the most sense, right? And vice versa, right? For other input providers as well. I think they also, um, at least the ones paying attention, see the market the same way. So can we open up our API layer to make our customer base somebody else's? Same thing for a tractor owner, right? Can we use that that asset that's roving around these last mile communities as a logistics and last mile distribution channel so that when a farmer books spraying services, they also have access to high quality crop care, mm-hmm. right? Within the sprayer to be, you know, applied on, on their crops. Or if they, you know, if they, if they hire a, a tractor owner for planting services, do they have access to the best quality seed, right? Um, that's areas where we can be very helpful to the ecosystem. And so the team spends a lot of time thinking about that. We were actually, just yesterday, I was on the phone with a, a top kind of agrochemicals company to see how we can incorporate their knowledge management and a lot of the decision tools that they've built into our applications. So if you're booking tractor services, you also now have access to information on how to identify certain diseases and pests on a plant and and the tools to automate the decision making around what what the farmer should do to protect their crop. Okay, well, I think that's pretty clear. I think something we obviously a discussion we we sort of had over and over, over and over and like over and over was really how does the whole mm-hmm. value chain work, right? Uh, over and above just yeah. what you're doing, how are you linking up with other people down the value chain, up the value chain, ensuring that actually uh, partnerships are working for the farmer itself. Yeah. And even, I mean, think about like, even on the marketplace side of our business, you have, we have a number of corporate partners who come to us and say, my sugar mill is operating well below capacity or my cotton generies are operating below capacity or my brewery uh, and we need more grain or we need more sugar cane coming out of these fields. And 50% of that yield gap, again, is not having affordable and timely access to mechanization. We can help with that. So instead of us having to go after, you know, 50,000 farmers in a given country, uh, we can get one contract from, from a brewery, and then divvy that contract up into smaller subcontracts that can be shared across our customer base. That's mm-hmm. a win-win. The, the tractor owner gets reliable business um, to keep the machinery busy throughout the season. The supply chain partner has now um, a down uh, or upstream opportunity to mechanize their growers uh, so that they're improving their yield, right? Mm-hmm. And then the farmers get more money. Because now they're selling double what they were selling before, and somebody's willing to pay for their mechanization. Um, and so, you know, that's like that's the trifecta. Where to from here? For you, for Hello Tractor, uh, what are your growth or scaling ambitions? What is next? I think for us, um, we got to get more equipment into the market. We partner with Mastercard and their Payment Rail and bank partners as well as uh, Moody's on the credit underwriting mm-hmm. to develop a uh, pay-as-you-go tractor finance product that people can invest in. Institutions, individuals, finance tractors that come with a full book of business. And as mm-hmm. the entrepreneur services, that book of business coming from Hello Tractor, a small portion of what they earn goes to pay down the loan. Yeah. And the elegance of the, the product is that 
the loan is amortized at a greater rate than the underlying depreciation on the asset backing the loan. So if there is a default for one reason or another and things happen, we can seize that tractor and repurpose it, resell it in the secondary market and make the loan whole. In fact, make money off of it. Um, and so we really think that can do a, a lot in crowding in more private sector capital um, to close this massive gap. And we're, we're not talking about, you know, a small problem. This is, this is, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars needed to close this, this gap. So you have to involve the private sector. Um, you have to involve investors who are chasing return. Um, but what we care about is aligning that return with the, the impact objective that brought us into the market in the first place. The gist. Innovate. Scale. Succeed.